Friends, what you just witnessed was a compilation of two social media video channels. People are awesome. Fail army. You've just seen humanity at its best and humanity at its dismal worst. Because ever since the beginning of time, humans have had to wrestle with this contradiction of what it means to be human. We've had to wrestle with the fact that humans are both, both the best and worst thing that could ever happen to God's creation. Humans are incredible. We just saw the Olympics. Humans are incredible, capable of working together to overcome almost any obstacle we face. Capable of incredible feats of skill and beauty. And we can produce symphonies. We can send people into space. We can effectively eradicate diseases that used to kill people. People are awesome. But at the same time, humans are the worst. Capable of working together to find new and more effective ways of killing one another. Capable of unspeakable hatred and evil. We destroy the environment. We sit on our couches as millions of people starve to death. We hurl abuse at our fellow human just for cutting us off on the highway. People are awesome, but we are a failed army. To put it slightly more eloquently than that video did, Blaise Pascal is a 17th century mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer and theologian. Just in case you felt inadequate already. Blaise Pascal said this. What sort of freak, then, is man? What a novelty, a monster, a chaos, a contradiction, a prodigy. Judge of all things, imbecile earthworm. Repository of truth, sewer of doubt and error. The glory and refuse of the universe. Well, friends, this morning we continue our series in the book of Genesis, a book about our origin as humans, a book about who we are. And as we've already seen in the book, humanity is both glory and garbage. Genesis 1 and 2 show humanity at its best. In fact, perfect, created in the image of God, ruling over God's creation in perfect relationship with God and in perfect relationship with one another. Humans are awesome in Genesis 1 and 2. But then last week in Genesis 3, we saw humanity rebel against God. The perfect world is ruined. Perfect relationships are ruined. Where out of relationship with God. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, which Colin just read for us, we've moved from Adam and Eve being deceived into sin to Cain willfully choosing to sin, right down to Lamech at the end there, who celebrates his sin. Lamech, of course, being the one who had multiple wives and rejoiced in the fact that he killed the person who punched him. In just two generations, we've descended from humanity being glorious to humanity becoming garbage. 
And so as we read this chapter, the, the thing that should come to mind, the thing we should be asking ourselves is, is there any hope for humanity? Because it would be tempting to get to the fourth chapter of the whole Bible and just go, give up and close the book. There's no hope. They, they had it perfect, and in just two generations it was ruined. Is there any hope? Can this fail army become awesome again? Well, even in chapter 4, a very bleak chapter, a chapter where almost everything is bad, there is a sign of hope. And the answer, the thing that will restore humanity to its former glory, is God's grace. In the depths of human disgrace, God meets us with his grace. Humanity can't save itself. Only God can save it. Only God can restore humanity to its former glory. And so the question for us to wrestle with this morning, the question for you and I as we read this story of God's grace in human disgrace, is how are you responding to God's grace? That's the only hope we have. The only thing that will take us from being a fail army to being awesome once again How are you responding to God's grace? That's the question for us to consider. As we look at chapter 4, we're going to see three wrong responses to God's grace. And of course, on the flip side, we'll see how we should respond. Uh, But as we do that, how about I pray for us? Let's pray. Lord God, we are mindful of how amazing humanity is, that you created us in your image, that you created us to know and to love you, that you created us with incredible skills, with incredible abilities to relate to one another, to work together, to work for good in this world. And yet, Lord, we are mindful that we are not often like that. We are so prone to wandering from your good design for us. We are so prone to rebelling against you, to not caring for your world, to not caring for one another. And so, Lord, as we read Genesis 4 this morning, would you help us see your grace? Would you help us see that you are the only hope for humanity? And, Lord, would you help us respond to your grace rightly? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where we left off last week, Adam and Eve had disobeyed God. Remember, they doubted his word. They denied his wrath. They distrusted his will. They were punished and they were sent out of the garden. They were no longer living in God's presence. They were no longer living in paradise. It was a low point for humanity. Naked and ashamed, they trudge out of the garden in disgrace. But in the depths of human disgrace, God met them with, their, with his grace. He gives them a new beginning. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. So even though Adam and Eve were condemned to death... God gives them new life. Eve, whose name means life, gives birth to two sons. 
in the depths of their disgrace, God blesses Adam and Eve with his grace. He allows them to reproduce, to continue to live and to bear children. But how do they respond to God's grace? Eve says this, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, it's a bit tricky to understand exactly what Eve is saying here, but I think it's hard not to detect a note of arrogance there. I have brought forth a man. The word is actually, I got myself a man. And the NIV doesn't capture it very well, but in Hebrew, the the emphasis is on the I. It's, I did this. God's help is sort of an afterthought. Now, to me, Eve claiming credit for creating a human life, well, that's sort of like the rider claiming credit for the gold medal in equestrian at the Olympics, in my mind. Why are we giving a medal to the human who just sits there? That's ridiculous. The horse jumped over the gates. They should get the medal. Eve did not create a human. Now, not to discredit women for the incredible work that bearing a child is, Eve's claim here, I think, is arrogant. I think she's claiming that what God gave her is actually what she achieved. In the depths of their disgrace, God meets Adam and Eve with his grace, mercifully giving them a child... And Eve responds by acting as if it wasn't a gift at all. She acts as if it was actually her achievement. Now, maybe I'm being harsh on Eve, and I'm willing to be wrong here. Maybe Eve wasn't being arrogant. But are you? Because treating God's gifts as our achievements is something that we really easily do. We love taking credit for things like our beauty or our intelligence or our skills that God gave us. We love taking credit. We love priding ourselves on our success in life as if we're actually in control of everything. And when we do that, when we take God's gift and treat it as if it's our achievement, well, what do we do? We're saying that we don't actually think we need God at all. Humanity at its worst arrogantly treats God's grace as our achievement. Humanity at its best humbly thanks God for the things he gives us. And so friends, everything we have, everything we have, every skill, every ability, every circumstance... Absolutely everything is a gracious gift from God. You don't have anything that God didn't give you. If it's a gift, you don't deserve it. And so how do you respond to a gift? You give thanks. And so let me ask you, have you said thank you to God recently? Is saying thank you to God a habit for you each day? That's the first response we see to God's grace In Genesis 4. But as we move on, Eve may have neglected to thank God for his gift of life, but her two sons, they don't. Because as we as the story continues, Cain and Abel, they grow up, they choose different career paths, 
And in verse 3 and 4, they both bring God an offering. Have a look, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now does that story seem a little unfair to you? Because it does to a lot of people. I think it should. Both Cain and Abel bring an offering to God. He hadn't requested a specific type of offering. He hadn't said, this is what your offering must be. Both of them bring an offering to God, but God decides that he likes one and not the other. He doesn't say why. Just says the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. And the question is, why? Surely God can't be playing favourites here, can he? Surely there must be an explanation. There has to be an explanation, doesn't there? Now, I think the text does point to a reason. I think the text does give us a hint as to why God liked Abel's offering and not Cain's. But before we come to that, I want us to see that God's perfectly free to do whatever he wants here. The two offerings could have been identical, And God is perfectly free to favour one and not the other. And you see, we have a problem with a God who chooses some people and not others. Because we think God should play by our rules. We're outraged by the thought of a God that blesses some people and not others. Because we think God owes us. We think we deserve God's favour. We think that because we're good and decent people, God ought to welcome us into his kingdom. We think that because we've done good things, God has to bless us. And so when things go wrong, when we lose our job, when we get sick, when someone we love passes away, so often we get outraged, don't we? We think, how dare God do that to us? My friends, what we need to see, if, that, if, if that's you, if that's the way you think about God, then your God is too small. If that's the God you believe in, then you don't actually believe in the God who created the heavens and the earth. You've taken the God of the Bible and you've shrunk him down so that you can stuff him in your pocket so that he's there to do whatever you want when you want him. Friends, the God that's presented for us in the Bible has no, is not bound by our sense of fairness. His ways are higher than our ways, we're told in Isaiah 55. His thoughts are better than our thoughts. He chooses who he chooses. He blesses who he blesses. He does what he likes because he alone is God. And that's what makes it grace. None of us actually deserve anything from God. 
God was not required to accept Cain's offering or Abel's offering. The only thing that any human actually deserves from God is certain death. That's the thing that we secured for ourselves when we reached out our hand to take the fruit in disobedience to God. When we rebelled against him, we made ourselves his enemies. The only thing we deserve is his punishment, his wrath. But in the depth of our disgrace, God meets us with his grace. And so in his grace, God chooses to bless some people. He chooses to bless some people with wealth and some not. He chooses to bless some people with a life of peace and prosperity here in Noosa and others not. By his grace, God chooses to give some people health and beauty and intelligence and others not. And friends, by his grace, God chooses to save some sinners from eternal judgment and others not. Now, he saves not because anyone deserves it, not because anyone could earn it. By grace alone. Ephesians 2 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Now, this is hard to accept, isn't it? A God of grace is actually something that many of us would find troubling. It might trouble you to think that God chooses to bless some people and not others. It might seem unfair to you. And friends, if that's you this morning, please understand you're not alone. There will be a number of people in this room who really struggle with this fact. If you're confused by this, please know you're not alone. It's okay to be confused by this. It's okay to be troubled by this. But what we need to see is that in most cases, the reason that we have a problem with a God who chooses some and not others is that we think too highly of ourselves. We think humans deserve things of God that God offers as a gift. So do keep wrestling with this. I'm happy to keep talking to you about it. But even if Cain and Abel had offered identical offerings, God was free to accept one and not the other. God is not bound by our rules of fairness and that does not compromise his goodness. He is good. But that being said, as I mentioned earlier, I think there actually is a reason why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. And the New Testament actually sort of blows the, uh, the mystery. It kind of tells us in Hebrews and in 1 John. But when Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, Abel, in contrast, is said to have brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And I think this is the difference here. Cain brings some of what he had. Abel brings his absolute best. Cain was willing to give Abel was willing to sacrifice. Cain was operating out of duty to God. Abel was giving generously. 
You see, the difference between the two brothers' offerings isn't so much about what they give. I mean, God created everything. He doesn't need their fruit or their lambs. God created everything. The difference is in how they give. It's their attitude towards God. The one who truly appreciates God is thankful for his grace, is willing to give everything. Giving the fat portions of the firstborn of your flock is a sacrificial gift. It actually limits your ability to to breed. It limits your ability to have income in the future. Abel's offering was sacrificial, but he knew and trusted in the God of grace. It's what we do with birthday presents. To someone that you like, you chuck 20 bucks in a card and say, happy birthday. But to someone that you love, you think about what you give them, don't you? You plan about what you're going to give them. You search for the perfect gift. That's the difference between Cain and Abel's offering. Cain chucked 20 bucks in a card and said, thanks God. Abel thought and planned and gave generously. And so, friends, what does your giving show about your attitude towards God? Now, hear me, it's not about how much you give. Remember, Jesus in the temple said that the widow who offered two little coins gave more than all the people who gave out of their wealth. It's not about what you give, it's how you give. So do you think carefully about what you give to God? Do you pray about what you give to God? Do you give first? Or do you give out of what's left over? Do you give out of your abundance? Or do you give to the point that it actually hurts? Now, please don't hear me saying, you know, don't hear this as a thinly veiled attempt to squeeze money out of you to give to this church. That is not what this is about. Now, if this is your church, you should be giving here. But I'm talking about more than just what you give here. I'm talking about everything that you give to God. Romans says we are living sacrifices. Everything that you give to God. Whether it's your treasure or your time or your talent. Does your giving reflect your gratitude to God's grace? Well... Anyone who's ever given a birthday present that goes unappreciated knows the pain that Cain feels. He had his offering rejected. But before we have time to blame God for hurting Cain's feelings, God actually goes in to counsel Cain. Have a look there at verse 6. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. The right response of Cain would be to learn from his mistake, to humbly accept that he failed, but to resolve to do better. To repent. To act in faith. That's what it would look like to rule over sin. Sin's crouching at its door, desiring to have him, but he must rule over it. And ruling over it in this case would be repenting 
and responding in faith. It takes humility to admit that he got it wrong. It takes courage. It takes effort. But instead, Cain lets sin fester, doesn't he? He lets it spread. He lets it grow. He lets his disappointment become envy. He's envious of his brother whose gift was accepted. He lets his envy grow into anger. He lets his anger become rage. And in rage, Cain kills his own brother. Sin was crouching at the door. It desired to consume him. And Cain let it. He gives himself over to these sinful desires. He lets evil thoughts rule his mind and his heart. And so in an act of premeditated hatred, he coaxes his brother out into a field and kills him. In verse 9, God invites Cain to confess. Where is your brother? Cain plays dumb. I don't know. Of course he knows. And so does God. And so in verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse. And driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. No, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain's punishment is an intensified version of the curse on his parents. For failing to rule creation, Adam was punished with painful toil. Getting food would be hard. For Cain, it would be impossible. God says the ground will not yield food for you anymore. Instead, he's left to wander. The ground rejects him. He'll have to wander restlessly on the earth. He's sent out from the presence of God. And life outside of relationship with God is restless. Always wandering, never at rest. Always searching, never finding. Always alone, always afraid, always miserable. Friends, this is life for us away from God. Life outside of Christ is restless wandering. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you haven't been reconciled to God, then you are a restless wanderer. And you'll go about your life searching for meaning, searching for purpose, and you won't get it. You'll be alienated from God, alienated from things in this world. You'll experience the anxiety and fear that Cain experienced. You'll be a restless wanderer. It's only, only when we have relationship with God again that we belong in this world. It's only then that we have hope. 
Because in the depths of human disgrace, God meets us with his grace. He meets Cain in his disgrace by by graciously protecting him. We see Cain says, this punishment is too much for me. And so God promises to protect him from having anyone kill him. But not only that, he gives more grace to Cain. Even though Cain has rebelled against God, even though he's out of his presence, God still allows Cain to have children. God still allows Cain to build a city. He still allows Cain's descendants to play music, to develop tools. He still allows Cain to be a human in God's world. In the depths of Cain's disgrace, God meets him with grace upon grace upon grace. And friends, in the depths of our disgrace, he does the same. In the depths of your sin, in the depths of your rebellion, in the depths of you at your absolute worst, God meets you with grace. He sent it in the form of a man, his own son, who lived and died and rose again so that you could once again be the person you were created to be. Through faith in Jesus, you can be rescued from the aimless life of wandering. Through trust in Jesus, you can be restored to perfect relationship with God. And right relationship with your fellow human. Genesis 4 shows us three wrong responses to God's grace. The arrogance of Eve that says God's gift is actually our achievement. We see the hatred of Cain for his brother that God would accept his gift and not Cain's. We see murderous intent. We see hatred and evil. But how will you respond to God's grace? Will you trust him? Will you give thanks to God? Will you accept God's grace to you? Let me pray. Our Lord God, it blows our mind that you would be gracious to us. It blows our mind that in the depths of our disgrace, when we fail again and again and again, where we rebel against you, when we destroy our fellow human, that you would respond to us in grace. Lord, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that in your boundless grace, you offer us not just forgiveness, not just salvation, but that you restore us to perfect relationship with you, that you restore us to our former glory, that you grow us to change us to be more like Jesus so that we can live in your presence forever. What amazing grace this is. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us respond rightly to your grace. Help us to accept your gift as just that, a gift. 
Help us repent of any effort that we have to save ourselves. Remind us that we are hopeless without you. Lord, I pray that you would help us cling to your grace every day that you give us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.